This episode is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online video platform geared towards making you a better hunter. Watch instructional videos taught by hunting experts like Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, and Corey Jacobson. After the hunt, learn how to prepare your harvest from world-class wild game chefs like Hank Shaw and Jamie Tajan. Whether it's your first year hunting or you grew up doing it, Outdoor Class will take your skills up a notch. Use code EMPIRE20 at checkout to save 20% off. Visit OutdoorClass.com to learn more. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back. Uh, most of you are in post-hunting season. I still have a couple days left. I'm going out tonight. I'm hunting with a few buddies. We're going to try to shoot some does to meet our quota. I think a lot of people are on the cusp of starting to get ready for habitat season or managing their property or whatever you want to call it. Today, I did some maintenance on my equipment. I got my chainsaws ready. We got some properties to cut coming up. So I got all my equipment ready to go, and I'm, I'm kind of pumped. Uh, I got to order a couple more chains. I go through quite a few chains during the season, and uh, you got to be ready to go. And if your equipment isn't, you know, isn't ready to go, I've got backup saws for backup saws. You know, I have extra of everything, essentially, so I can make it through. Uh, most of this, we'll say March, April, May, we finish cutting most properties in May, and then I run into the, the summer projects. I'm consulting all season long, and I think one of the things I wanted to add to this podcast is that gives me a leg up on pretty much most people that do consulting because when I, my favorite time of year to do consulting is in August and September, at least in the north, and uh, it allows me to kind of look at the landscape and, and see what the status of it is, the resource valuables, uh, the things that I start to quantify and qualify as valuable on the landscape. So if you're going to hire somebody uh, and, and, you know, any consultant for that matter, I would actually ask them what the optimal time of year is. If they're in the northern regions and they say winter months is the optimal time of year, I think they missed the boat. Um, I don't think that actually is the best time of year. Now, in the south, that might be the case, or in other areas, that might be the case. But in the north, and specifically the northeast, that is not the case. Um, and that's just your awareness of, you know, the the information that needs to be, I guess, in-tuned or uh, aligned or, you know, a part of the the habitat or management plans that they put together. Knowing the, 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 the proper plants and the landscapes is really important. Uh, a little off-topic conversation, but a conversation I had this week with a potential client I'm pushing clients into 2024 now. So if you haven't gotten in with me with 23, please stay on top of me to get you in the schedule for 24. I really appreciate everybody reaching out to, to me. And, and uh, that's it for my rant. So I got a great guest, uh, returning guest, uh, Mark Haslam's back. He's with Southeast uh, Whitetail Consulting. And if you remember in the past, he killed a monster buck early season, I think he's had a great season on his farm. We'll talk a little bit about that today. And he's got some topics that he wants to go through, things that he's thinking through this season in preparation for land management season. Hey, Mark, are you on the line? Hey, John. Hey. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good, man. Welcome back. How, how are things going with you? 
Things are going, things are going pretty well. Um, I, uh, I'm actually up here at a farm right now with my family for new years and, um, celebrate new years. And, uh, our, our season actually ends, um, January 1st. So, uh, we've got two, two more days left the season and we're going to close it out up here. Awesome. Are you hunting the next, are you hunting today and tomorrow or no? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I've been hunting the past two days up here, hunting, hunting this morning. We had, we had a heavy fog that rolled in, uh, last night. Um, have some rain, but yes, I will be hunting. Uh, and I tell you, the woods are pretty, pretty full right now. Just kind of driving around to and from the store around this area. I mean, there, there's all kinds of hunters out, uh, trying to, trying to take what they can fill the freezer before the season's over. Yeah. Understandable. I just had a neighbor call me this morning and he said, you know, he just kicked up two bucks onto my property. You know, they call it the sanctuary. Um, and, uh, you know, I was super pleased they, they didn't shoot either one of those deer. He described him. I sent him some pictures and said, were these the deer? And he said, yeah, those are the deer. And you know, those one was a year and a half. One was a two and a half. And, and again, it's just like, you know, you're hoping these last couple of days, people have that final push and, and I can't dissuade people, you know, good, good for you. But we, we've had a lot of bucks shed their antlers and I've got, you know, two quality bucks on camera. I know both these deer and they, they have already shed. I want to go out and start looking for their sheds. I'm hesitant to do anything, uh, pushing deer around, you know, into, into the neighbor's, you know, grip. So I'm trying to be super cautious right now because I'm, I'm anxious to, to go <laughs> do a little scouting, to be honest with you. I got cameras that I've had soaking all season. I'm, I'm dying to pull. Oh man. I, I bet you are. I, I, you know, I love doing that, but I, I just, I worry that the camera, that the, the, the batteries, you know, will die or, uh, you know, something might malfunction. Yeah. Uh, and the cameras, but I mean, but I, I tell you, there's nothing more enjoyable when you remember, or at least for me, because I'll put cameras up and I, and I'll forget about them sometimes when you remember, <laughs> or, or you see a camera that you forgot about and it's just been soaking there for months. That's fun. Well, I, check, check I, those. Yeah, so I went for a run over to my land today. Um, I, I went for a jog this morning and uh, I'm walking up my trail and I, I'm dying to walk in. And I've got this camera on this trail, but adjacent to it, there's a bedding area. And it's probably, I want to say it's about 175 yards away. And I've screened it all in. It's basically, in, it's like an enclosed bedding area. But just in, in, in lieu of this and knowing people are hunting, I started walking halfway up and I had hit myself in the head. I said, what are you doing? Don't pull that camera. And I got like a hundred yards from the camera and I turned around and I went back home and I ran home. And I, I was just thinking to myself, like, you know, that anxiousness of wanting to know, you know, what you're getting uh, in some of these new collection points. Cause I've, I've stashed cameras in areas where I typically don't collect data just to mm-hmm. see if there's random movement that I'm missing. The deer are kind of bypassing some of the, you know, areas that I've kind of segmented them and pinched them down. So I don't know. It's just, you know, you, you get anxious and, and you want to kind of analyze where you're at. So I want to talk a little bit about your hunting season. I know on the farm you've done extremely well this year. I followed, you know, you, I, I follow you obviously, and I pay attention to what you got going on. And I, I don't know specifically, but I, I know that there were at least you had at least a handful, maybe two handfuls of mature bucks killed on your property this year. Is that true? Yes, we've we 
were able to shoot eight uh, mature bucks this year, which is I don't know if we've reached eight before. I, I don't think we have. I think we've come close, maybe five or six, but but not eight. So, yeah, this was – for us, for me, this was a milestone year as far as, you know, bucks being uh, tagged. What would you say – there's many contributing factors. Some of it's hunting tactics. Uh, some of it's environmental, right? Some of it's just – your work land management efforts um you know hitting that threshold and and we're talking let me let me pause back we're about 1900 acres am i right with the numbers with you yes it is and i will add that it's 1900 total but it's over a couple tracks so it's not you know it's not 1900 uh in one continuous like square nice block so you know what we're so it you know it is that's over two properties so um sure and I, and, and I saw a lot of land but I say that I, I just mentioned that because these bucks I mean they could be they're not just on our property Absolutely. I mean they're floating around on three four sometimes more different properties because where we are there's some nice tracks of land but there's a lot of tracks that are like a hundred acres you know so it's um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, and I just mentioned that cause sometimes people think South and everyone's got, you know, thousands of acres and it's, you know, it's not quite that, that way. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not trying to equate it that way, but if, if you're thinking about like, you know, um, uh, and, and this is unfair to do this because a lot of it just depends on, you know, the, the type of success and what you're going for, but that, that's a pretty realistic number from my standpoint thinking about now your herd dynamics are a little bit off down there with the number of deer that you actually have so that's actually higher than i would expect um just because i know the volume of does that you have i'm not familiar working in your area but it just seems to me that the consumption value at least at that point kind of degrades the quality that you might experience so i know that you're taking out a lot of does every year we talked about that on previous podcasts but you know i still think eight based on that numbers is is pretty commendable. Um, and it's a number that I think it, you may likely be able to achieve again, just with your layouts. And like you talked about the non-contiguous, like it seems like that's even, that would be feasible depending on your next cohort and, you know, the quality within that cohort. And and I know a lot of people are thinking about this, like, Oh my gosh, you know, Mark's so lucky. He's got this large track of land, but you said you've got adjacent hunting pressure. We've talked before. I mean, there's Brown and Downers by you. I mean, there's people that are not doing anything that you're doing. So, you know, you're, you're trying to be the staple property that, that, you know, collects these deer, but they're wanderers. And, uh, you know, there's a strategy behind, behind that as well. Yeah, uh, that's right. I actually, I, I saw, um, someone posted something about that, about, you know, um, someone I follow about, they, you know, um, manage, manage their own farm and, you know, talking about, you know, hunting their private land in, as opposed to hunting public land, which they do a lot of. And I definitely got a lot of comments um, about people talking about how easier private land is. But like, tell you for instance, right now, I'm at the farm and I'm hearing some shotguns going off. And so we do have a lot of hunting pressure. But in South Carolina, as well as a lot of the South, there's a lot of dog hunting clubs or people that just run dogs to shoot deer. And we've got uh, dog hunting clubs all around us. And so we routinely have deer dogs on our property. So when people talk about, you know, private land, 
it's a lot easier and whatnot. I was like, well, there, there's a lot of pressure in the South. And then if you're up next to um, some people that run dogs to basically kick up deer to shoot on one, they're not practicing any kind of QDM. Like, like you said, it was priced down. But on top of that, the dogs just run wherever they want to. Right. And uh, we do have some low fencing to help, but, you know, it only helps when it does, you know. So it, 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 it's um, – there's a lot more pressure, I think, um, than what people – you know, if they're not familiar with private land, there's a lot more pressure than what people think. It's, it's not all like the TV shows, you know, we see on the Outdoor Channel and whatnot. Yeah, and and Mark, we're not putting you on a pedestal by any means. Let's just be clear. I think what you brought up, though, is an interesting topic that some people have to deal with in the South is the, is the running the dogs. In yeah. your in your example, low fence, right? To minimize that, um, it does help, right? And but you're talking, you know, a parcel to, to fence that's that's sizable, right? And even if you're doing one side of the parcel to segregate you from your neighbor. You know, what are some other strategies? Obviously, you need to have strong boundaries, well-marked, et cetera. What are things that you have thought of over the years to help people with that issue? Because that's, that's actually a common issue I've heard before. Yes, it, it, it really is. And um, we're just to quickly touch on the fence, we, we did put up a, a fence a while ago. Um, it's four feet, so fawns can routinely jump that. We see it all the time. Um, and, that, and that helps with the with the dogs however you've got a lot of fence to maintain plus every kind of critter possums armadillos they will burrow underneath the fence create a little hole for the dogs to you know go up under but i tell you it helps and it took me a while at first but it's like everything else with hunting get to know your neighbors i'm not saying you have to have them over for christmas dinner but you know connect with them exchange phone numbers. And so they typically, uh, one of the guys will tell me when they're hunting next to us. So they, um, some, a lot of these clubs down here, sometimes I'll just have one piece of land, but other times they will lease multiple tracks and they'll rotate, you know, they're going to hunt this track one week, the next track next week. So they're not hunting next to us every week. It's usually every three or four weeks, but they'll let us know when. So that way, we can plan ahead of time. So that way, you know, I can kind of map my hunts out knowing that, okay, if they're going to dog hunt next to us, let's say Saturday morning, then we'll hunt uh, that particular property, maybe Friday. Go ahead, go ahead and hunt it knowing that Saturday, I mean, it, you know, we could have, and, and that's the thing with dogs. I mean, you just in South Carolina, there are no, there are virtually no laws whatsoever. Uh, Georgia does have some good ones, but, um, so, but it's just to get to know your neighbor um, and do the best you can because there's going to be times when you wounded a deer and need to go on their property to maybe retrieve it and vice versa. So that's always a good thing. I, you know, I'm not saying you got to swap trail camera photos, but it's always good because you just don't know what could happen. Yeah, I think this is a good recommendation for people that are dealing with this issue. And you're essentially saying, you know, put pressure on your borders and, you know, push, push deer interior of, of your property, essentially. One of the strategies we, we work on with some of my clients is just, again, that consistent pressure, um, making a property adjacent to you uh, less advantageous for the deer, you know, applying that type of pressure, whether it's, you know, sending into the property, whatever the case may be, 
we've had a bunch of different strategies that I've worked with different clients on just to dissuade deer from utilizing a neighboring property. Well, let's, let's jump ahead because, you know, we said you've had a lot of success this year. You've been in the stand a lot. You're hunting right now. Season's coming to close. You know, what did you learn post observation, all the data that you've collected this season? What were your big takeaways for you? That's a good question. Um, I tell you, I'm trying to really hone in a lot on data that we collect in the skinning shed. Okay. So, and when I refer to that, I'm not talking about just simply weights, but, um, you know, a lot of people use different, there's, there's, there's so many different platforms out there in the hunting space to, you know, to give you the upper edge, um, whether it's weather related or, rut related or whatever, but, um, you know, I've always been a, a student, a fan of Q, you know, QDM, but uh, yeah, after really kind of diving into some of the materials out there, as far as like the actual science behind it, it's really quite fascinating. And, and I know, you know, a lot about it, but like, for instance, um, right now, we are trying to fill some late season doe tags because we're, you know, trying to balance the herd and we have a, a number of antlers deer that, that, we, that, that we want to take, but we don't wait to the very end to shoot them. We, you know, we, we try to shoot them throughout the season. However, right now you can get some insane data from does. And I mean, it's, it's a little bit more, um, it's, it's a little heavier, I should say, um, that maybe some people might be able to actually do, but, you know, a lot of the does right now are already pregnant and, um, there's, um, Joe Hamilton, who founded QDMA, now NDA, created this fetus scale, um, I think back in the eighties, I I think my, and, and what it is, it's really just, just simply a ruler and, when you're in the skinning shed right now, a lot of does should should be pregnant. You take, take the fetus and you measure it. And he's in, in the in the scale, the ruler is, I mean, it's black and white as far as, you know, how many days. And then you learn when that doe was bred. I mean, that, I mean that, that's some of the best data I think anyone could possibly collect. And you don't necessarily have to have your own property. I mean, someone could be, Someone could be hunting public land anywhere, you know, anywhere in the country, white-tailed deer, shoot a doe, kill a doe right now, clean it, check that, you know, measure the fetus, look at it, and then you know when she was bred. And so, like, what would that tell you? I mean, that's some pretty good data right there as opposed to, you know, some of these rut prediction type things, um, which, you know, a lot of that's based on, you know, who knows what, but um, – that and of course, uh, jawbones matching that up with weight, kind of tracking the weights with the age. Um, but yeah, I mean, right there, that that's um, that's what I'm really trying to hone in on is uh, when these does are bred, because some of these, it it looks like some of our does might be cycling back in. We're seeing a little bit of kind of activity, not much. But there's different things that we're seeing right now and a lot of people locally are seeing, which kind of makes sense with our deer numbers. That maybe if a doe wasn't bred, I mean, they could be, I guess, cycling in for, for the third 
third time right now, especially if it was like a Fondo that, um, you know, maybe is just reaching around 65 pounds or so, which, you know, those does right now, if, if they're, if they're being bred right now, they've already got one foot in the grave, those fawns. Yeah. Uh, because they're going to be born much later, as you know. And so, um, but that's the kind of, that's the kind of data I, I'm, I'm trying to hone in on right now because that tells you, that should tell you exactly when, if you want to hunt the ruts, if you want to, you know, figure out when to hunt, you, you're learning your peak breeding. And you're not, yeah, I mean, it's not guessing. It's not looking at trail cameras because I, I think, you know, trail cameras and observational, you know, observations from the stand are great. But it's like a little snip, you know, snippet of your entire region, I mean, entire immediate area. So, I mean, I could have a couple hunters up for a weekend and then we hunt a, a collective 12 times. But that's still like everything, all those 12 hunts combined, that's not what the whole herd's doing. We're just seeing what we see. So, you know, it, it's that kind of data, I, I think, is just is, is golden. I think it is. I think having that, that index data is cool. I think Joe Hamilton's scaling. I don't know how many fetal, you know, uh, samples he had to develop that scale. I've seen the scale. I've actually seen Joe do it. I'm sure you have as well. It, it is interesting to see that. I, I'm overly impressed with that. And I like the fact that you're you're not just focusing on the obvious of deer weight, you know, tooth wear, right? Th- those type of things, kind of getting those statistics are are important. Um, but you're also, like you said, looking at the data as it relates to kind of the, the time of year. Um, I have seen, in my opinion, and I haven't seen any actual breeding, but we saw another, and this is kind of an annual basis, and I think the percentage is probably less than 10% of the does getting bred in a second cycle in our particular area. That puts those deer into that late June drop. And yeah. if, if anybody's familiar with our areas in the north, um, if you're going to have a three or four month old deer walking into September on October and it's at a weight of 30 pounds or less or 35 pounds and you have a heavy winter, there's no way that deer will survive. Um, there's 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 not enough fat content. Um, and uh, again, it depends on your winter and the, the severity of your winter. I mean, there's winter severity indexes that, that are measured on an annual basis in the north and that's critical to you know animal survival i mean i'm not saying that a deer that's not 40 pounds won't make it through you know the winter months it it just may i'm just saying that the probability is a lot lower depending on its its current status so you know you really want these tight breeding windows uh based on the nutritional health status of the deer um to be in a certain period of time and those secondary ruts or what have you hopefully that's just you know just the anomaly and those are not kind of uh, I, you know, that's not an ideal status for kind of promoting herd health and longevity. And it puts a lot of stress, stress on the doe that is having that particular animal um, through those summer months and weaning off. It takes a, you know, a lot of lactation and obviously nutritional demands to, to keep that, that deer up to snuff. So, you know, they are surviving in the winter months. That's just the northerner take on it, Mark. But, but really interesting bringing that up because I think a lot of people may not be paying attention to that. And you also get to see, I think is a huge statistic is for the does that you are killing the percentage that are bred. And that's, that's really, I think a sure. really important uh, consideration just alone minus the, you know, the fetal measurements, et cetera, from, from a date and time standpoint, just, just my two cents. All right, let, let me push you because uh, we want to get into what you got going on this season. 
Um, and we want recommendations from you, you know, seasons ending, what do I do? What, what are my, what are my first quarter activities that I'm going to be working on or Mark's going to be working on, whether there's clients or your, your own property. Can you give me some thoughts and suggestions as, as kind of a landowner? Well, the, <laughs> I tell you what I would normally do in, <laughs> or what I would normally, normally be thinking about all the projects, you know, all the projects. Um, but what my father has, uh, kind of got me more aligned is, is, is really the first thing that we do every year is, is go ahead and work up a budget. And we look at, um, you know, what we want to plant as far as food plots, warm season, cool season. Um, we look at, uh, if we're looking at, you know, I mean, any kind, any kind of like new tractor stuff, anything, just go ahead and, and try to get a, a good rough budget of what we're looking at doing. Um, do we have a, a timber contract right now? Is there money coming in, whatever else, any kind of capital improvements? Because if you don't do that, you're, you're going to start spending money before you realize what your really goals are. So just to come up with a kind of a, a good working budget. And if you don't already have one or, or kind of keep track of how much people are spending, it's always good. It's always good just to know, and then from there, um, we'll start prepping. Really, the first year we'll start prepping fire breaks, um, getting them ready to to start burning. And you know, we'll burn when the conditions are right. Um, but a lot of our ground is very wet and a little too wet to burn. But if we can do that between January and uh, really May. Um, we'll start to get that going. And then, um, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we try to push off and not do during the hunting season. Timber contracts right now is, is something that I'm, um, very anxious to, to get some lined up. We've got a lot of forestry work that has just been backlogged and, um, we're switching things up. So hoping to get some buyers in to our timber because really, in my opinion, if you're in pine country in the South, forestry work is probably some of the best kind of overall habitat management work you can do on your property. You start doing routine forestry work, and you're going to shape up the property, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get there a lot quicker than if you're just simply clearing out land just to put, put food plots because you can do that with forestry work too. Um, that's, that's really it. I mean, it's just coming up the budget and then, um, working up a projects and then trying to set dates, like not like, okay, this weekend I'm going to do this, this weekend I'm going to do that, but try to block off realistic times because, you know, I don't live at the farm. I've got a job, you know, family. So we try to, I try to block off. Okay. So we're going to burn. Let's try to do it in this window and especially plant. Planting food plots really can get away from people. It, it gets away from me too if I don't if I don't try to come up with a timeline calendar as far as like food plots because you've got you know some of them we need to bush hog like the sun hemp for instance we'll bush hog that and let that kind of rot back in the ground. Some of the other stuff we'll have to prep, maybe spray, and and, and all that takes time uh, before you can plant. And then uh, one thing I'm going to do a lot, a little bit differently this year, 
is go after the predators very hard uh, leading up and through turkey season. I've got a cousin of mine that uh, he coon hunts a lot. Uh, he's got a hound. I, I, I couldn't tell you what kind of hound it is, but um, he's going to come in, I think, uh, sometime in January for a weekend, and we're going to try to um, take out some raccoons and possums and armadillos and whatever else we can, just anything that's, you know, a predator that's going to eat ground um, ground nests and try to do that uh, before the turkeys start breeding. Can I back you up for a second? And um, I'm just going to throw out a st- statistic. I actually love that you started with, you know, your consideration is budget because that, that drives the train, either hiring a consultant, buying equipment, yeah. whatever the case may be. I can tell you, um, I think this is, you know, I'll just say my own opinion on stuff. I can go rogue on some of this is my podcast. So <laughs> I, I see guys spending money on these consultants that are like $10,000. And yeah. uh, I work with all types of people. Um, specifically, um, I've worked with a few uh, very smart environmental consultants that that have really good kind of layout strategies and plans. It's a little bit obscure and different from some of the things that I do. Um, and the intricacies and the details of their plans are, are far greater than anything that I've seen. I've integrated some of those concepts into my own reports. Um, and I, I just think, you know, when you get realistic and you're like, okay, time, money, return, and you're starting to think about, you know, most of my clients are spending anywhere between 2000 to 5000 on a consultant. Most of them are spending on an annual basis, you know, 1000 to $25,000 on, you know, equipment, support, what have you. And then I'm thinking about like time and most people, depending on, you know, again, what they do for a job, uh, their means, whatever may be the case, you know, most people are able to get it dedicate at least 15 to 20 days on an annual basis. Now, these are typically my clients. Um, some have, you know, a budget that's $50,000 a year. Um, some people have, you know, a $2,000 budget. Um, but you've got to look at this value you're getting out of, you know, uh, the input and, I really have a hard time walking a property and not giving kind of them the full write-up or giving the full depth of information to get them moving. Not only is it a mind shift, but it's like, what's it going to take to actually do this work and what tactics or techniques am I going to employ in order to get changes? And you started out saying, all right, we got to remove some timber. You know, we got some timber work here to do. And it's just kind of knowing, okay, what, based on this decision tree, what are my first steps or last steps in order to get this timber more productive for X purpose or X objective? And sometimes there's money to be made, there's money to be lost, right? Expenses. And so to that point, I would say, be conscious of how you're spending your money. And sometimes resources, like for example, resources like, I don't want to say resources like me, but resources like me or other people that are connected um, to a forester or connected to people have heavy equipment or tools, et cetera, they could be so much more valuable than the amount that you just paid because they have not only those connections, but knowledge to get you down the right road. And, and Mark, I only see that because I've been dealing with some other consulting bits of data and it's, it's uh, mm. and I'm always learning, but I, I feel like it puts you down the wrong path. The answer is not switchgrass. The answer is not miscanthus grass. The answer is not planting trees. It's all of that. You know what I mean? It's all of that yeah. plus uh, maybe a hundred times more things and being very strategic in each particular area. So that's, that's my rogue rant for a second. 
All right, let me let me push you down the road. So let's let's um, let's pick on you for example. You've been talking about um, forest management and you know trying to get people in there to harvest the timber, et cetera. What do you think this year would would actually push your property down the next up up the next level? What would allow you to even level up further than you've already kind of accomplished at this point? Is it just that extreme cutting and management of the herbaceous material at different ages and stages? What what do you think is going to propel you to the next level on your particular property? I right now we have um, a good amount of timber that needs to be thinned. Um, we've got some trees, some pines that are 12, 15 years old and they and, and they need that first thinning. So they're, they're in that awkward stage where nothing's using them. Uh, the canopy's closed. Um, you could burn it, but it's not getting any sunlight. So it's not really that much value if you were to burn it and we just need to thin it, take some trees out. And that'll and that'll get start the process of getting wildlife back in those areas. But you know, when you plant plant pine trees, the first number of years, depending on the soil and you know how thick it's going to how thick the vegeta- other vegetation is going to be, it you know a cutover is going to be great for a long time. And then and then you you know when I say cutover, it's only a real cutover for maybe less than a year, and then you replant it. Um, and after a year or two, it's it's a great you know, thicket for deer, but usually around 10, 12 years, you can start to kind of see through straight through it. And that's when wildlife's not really, it, it's, there's very little for wildlife. to like nothing. They might be traveling through it to get somewhere else. But yeah, if we can thin some trees, um, we clear, we clear cut a, a number of sections a couple of years ago. So we We've got some bedding. We are basically losing some bedding sites as we speak uh, because some of those areas that are young, there's, you, you can sort of see through them now. Um, so we probably need to clear cut a little bit more. I've got a couple spots that I want to go ahead and clear cut. Um, they might only be like five acres, maybe two to five acres, maybe 10 acres, basically to create some bedding where I want it. Now, that's the kind of stuff where like, you start planning on a budget, you know, and, or, you know, of course you got your budget, like I, like what I mentioned, but you're forced to plan. Some of that is, you got to think, you know, far out because, you know, I know where, where my good bedding is right now, but that bedding, if it's, if it's, if it's a young pine stand, you're going to lose it at a certain point, the deer are going to be out of there. So you've got to constantly be creating something new to replace the other one seamlessly. Um, so those two things I like to do and then really just, I would love to burn more this year. Yeah. Last year it was just a little bit too wet. Um, and some of our, some of our lower areas, um, and they're not bottoms and, and they're not, they're not wetland areas. They just, this is that time of year for us where it rains and that water just stands and the ground just stays wet and soggy. And it makes it very, very, very challenging in some places to burn. But yeah, I would love to burn a lot more if I could this year. Yeah. And I think that would, that will obviously set you ahead because again, you're, you're setting to that early stage, which 
is optimal for turkey status, right? Their interest in those areas is going to be optimal that first couple years. And then, of course, the herbaceous material that first your growing season is so productive, you know, that the deer are in there instantaneously, essentially. I, I, I'm, I, I would love to be in a situation where it was commonplace to burn up here. I'm not even saying that I've recommended clients to burn, but my goodness, I've been on properties this year are just ideal, ideal for burning key areas. I mean, when they have the burn bans established here in, in our state, that's the optimal time to burn. And it's just, it's just so obscure, like the mindset around here, you know, they're all about protecting the forest, but they're not about protecting the wildlife. Um, I shouldn't even say that that's, that's a broad brush, but the interest is very, um, I guess, fleeting when it comes to ideal situations. So I, I like that answer because I think it shows at least, you know, you can do some simple things. And, and the reason I brought up the money stuff earlier is, you know, a drip torch and, um, time and uh putting in fire breaks you know a lot of that stuff you can do by hand and you can do smaller areas on your property that that are easily manageable with hand equipment and tools it doesn't take that much money to get going there and that's a huge investment but it's not a big it's not a huge investment it's an important investment but it's not an expensive investment in my opinion and i think it'll get you way farther ahead and um I'm not pushing people away from consultants or, you know, not tying in, but tie in with the right people that, that are going to give you the, the best advice you can for your particular areas that, that have actually hunted your areas that have experience, you know, uh, managing habitat in those areas. This is a lot different from the Midwest, you know, your particular region, uh, which is a lot different from the Northeast for that matter. You know, savannas aren't a common place out here in the Northeast. Um, the type of vegetation, shrublands is, is low quality, wetlands is I'm sorry, not low quality, low availability, wetlands, low availability. We have mature forest. Most properties I'm on, it's 70, 80 mature forest. And when I say mature forest, that's in that 70 to 90 to 120 year range that have been unmanaged and abused. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's pretty much what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with timber situations. So in that case, if you have familiarity with the tree species, it's just whip out that chainsaw and make sure you have two because you might get one stuck and get going. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's keeping it simple. I want people to make the investments of time and effort and, you know, not everybody can put in the, the time and effort. And again, if money's strapped, listening to this podcast is pretty valuable because we're giving you kind of the, some of the key takeaways. So, you know, we've got that going on. What else, what else are you thinking? Like when it comes to, you know, your plan ahead this first quarter, what, what are things that you could recommend for, for clients um, that you haven't said thus far? Um, I would, you know, I, I know I mentioned food plots. I, I would probably suggest to people, and I'm saying this because I was in this boat, years ago you know you, you you don't no one's thinking about food plots right now you think about food plots or, or, or at least i did you know a, a while ago and a lot of people you think about it when it's time to plant all of a sudden you see people posting about it you know it's springtime we got some rain coming in and also okay well i i got a plant and then you're going out and but did did you prep the soil did you do a, a soil sample did you do you need a spray uh, to kill off any kind of vegetation? Or it, there's a lot of different things you might be might need to do. And on top of that, you don't want to rush into it, and you don't want to just you know uh, wait wait last minute and then go to your seed store and buy them and buy whatever they try to sell you. Um, you know, do your homework. There's so much material out there specific to pretty much every region in the country as far as what works, what doesn't work, when to, when to plant. Cause I mean, you know, you could buy, 
you could buy a bag of whatever soybeans that's kind of marketed throughout the country. But, you know, where, when I need a plan is different when you need a plan or whatever else. So just, you know, just, you know, take your time because it, it, it's, it, it, uh, the food plot game, I think, I mean, and I, and I say, I think because I was there, you know, a long time ago where we were wasting a lot of time and money planning, buying, seeing, and planning when, when we weren't doing it right. You know, we weren't, we weren't doing it right. Some, you know, the plant was grow, you know, sprouting, but it wasn't reaching, you know, maturity. It wasn't producing the seeds or whatever it was supposed to, or, or, um, it didn't produce not because of how I planted it or the lack of rain because the deer and the deer just killed the plant, ate it down before, uh, it could even, you know, produce whatever you're trying to grow soybeans or whatever else. So that's a big thing. And that kind of ties back into, you know, uh, you know, all those observations on the stand in the skinning shed as far as how many does you have, how many deer you have, how many mouths in the landscape. Um, because just because something green pops up does not mean that's the seed you, you bought and you were hoping for. And then a lot, I mean, we have that problem down here with our densities is you plant or we spend a lot of money prepping seed and the deer wipe it out and they kill the soybeans or they kill, you know, lab lab or whatever it is before they even reach maturity. So you really just waste it. It's all, it's all wash, all that money's down and the protein you thought you were getting from the soybean that never even produced. So there's some different strategies, of course, know your deer herd, but then also, um, you know, utilizing those enclosure cages, just simply take a hog wire, chicken wire fence and make it, uh, I don't know, three or four feet uh, diameter and put it up and see what the deer couldn't eat. Um, we've been using something for a number of years that our farmer turned us on to. It was called DESX, D-E-S and the letter X. Um, it was originally marketed to farmers. Uh, it, it's an insecticidal soap, um, but it, 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 you spray it on soybeans. A lot of farmers spray it on cotton too, and it makes the plant taste bitter for deer until about the next rainfall. But that's that's golden to uh, to use to kind of keep the deer at bay. Um, but yeah, I would just that that kind of ties in a run running a um, a budget. But just plan ahead. I mean, right now the next couple months, there's not really a whole lot going on for people. They might be duck hunting still. You know, you might be thinking about turkey hunting, but you're not really doing much for turkey for for turkey hunting at least. You know, you're you're just stay home and just plan all this stuff out. You know, think about what you want to plant um, this spring or fall. Try something different. You know, plan ahead because all the stuff it's it it's you know it's not like you're just going to take off a week in the spring. You know, pick your buddy up, go to the seed store, and go to your farm and plant. That's just not how it works. <laughs> yeah. You, you just, you know, plan it out and, 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 you know, talk, spend some time, uh, you know, engage with your local uh, university extension centers, you know, ag extension or, 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 or whoever that, that's, you know, localized, you know, in your region and figure out what you want to plant. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Mark, one, one thing I'm, I just question about when you talked about the areas that have a, a large deer herd and, you know, the consumptive values of some of these plants and how they're just browsed to the ground pretty early. 
you know, do you have any recommendations for maybe uh, a summer planning uh, that, that you may think would do better in, in those conditions where you have a high deer density, et cetera, just maybe something simple for the listeners? Yeah, there, there's something called, uh, there's, this one has a lot of different names, uh, deer joint vetch, uh, American joint vetch, um, astronomy. It, it, it's, uh, it's kind of a slow growing plant. Deer do like it. Um, but, uh, they don't really hammer it as intensely as, as a lot of, uh, traditional ag like corn and, and peanuts and soybeans. Um, that's a good one. Alfalfa. There are some people in the South, even, even more along the coast that can grow alfalfa. Um, I have been wanting to try that for a while. Um, and it's, you know, if you want to do soybeans, I, I, I think that's great, but our luck has been just to swamp them with it. It is the, you know, you can't just plant an acre. It's not going to work probably in the South. You need to have, you don't necessarily need to have, you know, 10 acre fields, but try to get enough land around your property and just swamp all at once with soybeans all at one time. And if you're around some ag, you know, if you have some farmers, try to time it the same way to maybe they're already eating. Maybe by the time your beans are up, they're already consuming uh, what your farmer's planting, something like that. Because I see a huge difference when uh, our local farmers, you know, when I say local, I mean like our deer are consuming what they're planting. When they plant a lot of cotton, I notice a big difference on our food plots. They still eat the cotton, but they're hammering our food plots so much more as opposed to when they have more peanuts or corn or soybeans. Well, they're in those fields and there's, and there's some years, it was two years ago in 2020 and we had a lot of soybeans, probably 20 acres center of our property. And they, the deer did not touch those beans. I mean, I didn't hunt early season in August over them because they weren't in there. They were all around us. Um, they were in the ag fields, the corn and the peanuts and the soybeans. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that can be another thing. I mean, if, if you have some ag, you know, think about or connect with the farmers, ask them what they're planting. Cause that really can make a big difference as far as how the deer, uh, hit your food plots. Yeah. Great advice. I think having that conversation is, is really critical. So I think, uh, I think most people don't do that. That's just you planning ahead and thinking aligned with your strategy and your planning that you've got going into this, this period of time. I, I love that. And, and it's not something that I've ever done. I don't think I've talked to, you know, adjacent farmers to know what their plans, you know, of action are and, and how that's going to affect, you know, the local deer herd and, and what I would plant. So I, I love that idea. All right. We're getting towards the end of this. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, anything you got going on you think is critical for the users or, excuse me, listeners? Any anything uh, anything from you, John? I can't think. I can't think of anything else other than um, you know we're, we're about to start a new year, and uh, you know if someone owns land, um, my suggestion to them would just be to you know treat it and run it like a business. Um, you know. Everyone out there, if they own land, they might not be growing trees. But if you are growing trees, treat it like a business. You know, figure out 
figure out your your standing inventory on the stump. It might take a forester or two, but figure out you know how much money you have on a stump right now, and then work up that projection as far as you know uh, ten years down the road or the next big big cut. You know your your projected income running like a business because. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably doing a lot of things or want to do a lot of things to improve your property, capital projects, whatnot. You're building value. And when you're managing the deer herd, you're building value. And that value might not translate to every buyer, but if someone's interested in deer hunting, you are creating value. So, you know, don't, don't, uh, I guess I'm saying just don't, you know, don't take it lightly, treat it like a business, run your budgets. And uh, that way, it's more likely to transfer to the next generation if someone leaves it in their family or if they get to sell it. Yeah. It's going to be that, it's going to be that much more valuable because I, I tell you, my, my father is a retired CPA and uh, he had a lot of clients, um, a lot of rural co- clients, farmers and a lot of hunting property and whatnot. And you know, he, he's always told me that a, a lot of times land that matter what kind of land it is, rarely survives to the kid. Uh, I'm sorry, to the to, to the grandkids. You know, someone buys a property, and it goes to their to, to their kids. But by the time it gets to the grandkids, things are just different. And you know, all the grandkids might not have the same might not have the same interest, or there might not be a working uh, plan. You know, budget, income, projections. And so when you structure that way, you're creating something that your uh, kids and their kids can, can probably keep if you work up those budgets, knowing that basically the farm can be sustainable and, uh, you know, pay for itself. Or at least, maybe not necessarily pay for itself, but at least try to break even a little bit, cover the carrying cost. Yeah, and, and that's, that's an important topic and probably a topic that you and I should hit on because I think some of the expenses in the South versus the North versus the Midwest is, you know, what are those carrying costs going to be? The taxes in our area are exponentially higher than in other areas, particularly in the South, uh, particularly in the Midwest. And it makes the cost of owning property so much more. And one thing to your point is we add value to their property almost every time we walk on you and I, and the expectation is that value is going to equate to something, whether it's, you know, animal at the end of the barrel, or I'm going to, you know, buy this property or excuse me, sell this property, level up to the next property. There's some value being created at some point or other. You just have to understand what that is before you get your boots dirty and start moving. Because if I can increase, and we've, I haven't done all the statistics on this, but in some properties that I've worked on, they've sold them. You know, my expectation is they're getting 10 to 20% in addition to what they normally would do based upon the change. I'm actually, when we're, we're talking, I got a client messaging me, showing me all the things this year. And he's, he's showing me all the improvements and the change. He's like, there's more fecal matter. There's more rubs. There's more scrapes. There's more of this. I said, (laughs) then start building, you know, if you decide to sell that property, start building this complete package. Not only do they have the harvest data now to show it, but they they have the whole, and, and it just goes to show you, Somebody's going to be willing to pay 10 to 20% more, more than likely because of the, this improvement. Now, what does that equate to dollars and cents? And was it worth your time and investment? And the joy, again, that you get out of the harvest, it's not equatable to, to a dollar and cent. So, you know, there's, there's all this kind of weighting uh, of, of different, different uh, aspects. And I, 
I kind of like your mindset. Treat it like a business. Run it like a business. See how you can kind of sustain yourself. At the same point, I recommend when clients are pulling out money, they're saving some percentage of that and they're they're doing a reinvestment. We've talked, I think you and I have actually talked about that previously. They are doing a reinvestment to think, you know, through the areas. I mean, if you need box blinds or, or you know, you need equipment, right? Or whatever the case may be. So I, I, I like I like the the monetary piece of this and your your mindset on this because I think a lot of people don't don't kind of broach that topic. You you you're right. If I could add one little thing quickly, Shoot. just to piggyback on what you just said, you're you're absolutely spot on. And when I talk about budgets, I'm talking about because because I like like for us, for instance, we didn't know how much we were spending on on hunting. So you know, up at the farm, we we spend money on hunting, which might be like box blinds. Uh, you know, building the rifle range and stuff like that. And then you've got your forestry work. So if we, you know, doing road work or spraying gum trees, and then you've got food plots tying back into hunting, and then you've got some, you know, some, some costs that, you know, that, that you're, you know, it's going in to, to, to put value in the property and you're, as opposed to just spending money for box blinds. And I think, I think a lot of people probably like us, they didn't realize how much money they were spending on hunting as opposed to, you know, money that was going into your property. And that's just, and that's just good to know. Um, yeah. So that you can, you know, uh, figure out where, where you want to be because you don't want to have a property. I mean, I, I see it. Um, I saw it, you know, I see it in real estate where, you know, people buy and it's, it's the same thing, John, people buy, there's a lot of people buying investment properties in real estate across the board the past two years with this crazy real estate market. And there's going to be some people buying investment properties that, that will own it for a couple of years, didn't run it like a business, didn't have a budget. And then after a year or two, they realize it's just a money pit, but, but they never had it set up the right way. Yep. And, and then they'll, and then it, it just, and then it's a snake bit from the beginning. So true the right, right way and build it and, you know, you know, build a legacy and, you know, hopefully pass it on to your next generation or sell it. Yeah. <laughs> and you can make a very good return. Cause like what you said on the you know, hunting statistics, like if you were going to look at a property today and you were looking at a property to purchase, would you be more enticed let's just say it's the exact same track of land just across the county. Okay. And one property they could show you, they could scroll through their phone and show you some kill photos, some grip and grins and trail camera photos of box over the years or another guy, same kind of property can give you a log book, can give you logs past 10 years of real data, you know, observational logs, harvest logs with weights and, and jawbone statistics and all that stuff. There's a big value there, like what you mentioned, a huge value. If someone's looking to hunt and you've got that kind of stuff, um, you know, you can show them your burn rotation or whatever else. There's a huge value there that your property is like what you said is going to be substantially uh, higher value. Everyone might not pay for it, but if you're into hunting or if you realize the investment, it's your property will have that extra value. Absolutely. Mark. I, I like ending on that. I think that's a, that's a good, big piece of this and, and ties into everything we started off talking in the beginning. We kind of went through a lot of topics today. Some of it was ad hoc. We didn't really have a plan. We just wanted to connect. 
So I appreciate you being on the podcast. Um, everyone go follow Mark. Obviously, you know, he's on Instagram. Um, he's got his business. Follow him. If you're in the South, reach out to him. Uh, he's a resource for you. He's obviously been successful this season. And then, you know, he's helping people, and, and that's really important. And uh, appreciate you sharing today, Mark, what you knew and, and uh, everything going forward. Um, we'll have you back on, obviously, you know, sometime here in the near future, and then we'll just see what's going on. Any uh, any new techniques, strategies, or things that you're employing, especially burn season, we'll get you back on for that. Um, right now it's a it's a little wet, but, you know, in a few months we'll be we'll kind of be ticking with that, so. That's about it. For That's me. right. I, I appreciate it, John. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. We'll talk soon again. Thanks. See ya. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.